to this week's uh, Griffith Asia Institute Asia Research Story. Uh, I'm Renee Jeffrey, and it's my pleasure to be hosting uh, another great Asia Research Story. Uh, I'm particularly pleased that this week we're turning um, our attention to my favourite part of the world, and that's um, to the Pacific. Uh, before we do that, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which um, we're meeting, watching and participating in today's event. Uh, today I'm on the lands of the Jagera and Turrbal people, and I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. For those who are joining us live um, via Zoom, um, it's great that so many of you are able to join us this week. Um, can I just remind everybody to please um, keep their cameras switched off. Um, putting our cameras on unfortunately seems to create some issues with connectivity um, and with editing the videos um, for other people to watch later. So yeah, if you could please keep them switched off, um, that would be great. There will be a short Q&A session um, at the end. Please submit your questions um, using the chat function. Um, and you really don't need to feel like you have to wait until the end of the session um, to start putting your questions up. It's great if we have some ready to go um, when the conversation um, ends. And of course, we'll be over on Twitter um, later in the day. Our hashtag is researching Asia stories. Um, so please join in the conversation there um, later on. For those people who are watching um, the recording or listening to the podcast later, um, I really hope that you enjoy the conversation. So it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Tess Newton-Kane as this week's guest. Uh, Tess is an adjunct associate professor in the Griffith Asia Institute. Uh, she has a law degree and a PhD from the University of Wales in Cardiff and has previously worked at the University of the South Pacific in Vanuatu, uh, where she's lived for most of the last 20 years. Um, Tess is the principal of TNC Pacific Consulting um, her clients, um, there's a huge list of them. Um, some of the key ones include um, the Office of the President of Vanuatu, the Government of Vanuatu, the Pacific Islands Forum Secretariat, the UN, the World Bank, the Asian Development Bank, um, and the governments of Australia and New Zealand. Uh, her research focuses on the Pacific Islands, regional politics and geopolitics, Pacific regionalism and sub-regionalism, democracy in the Pacific Islands region, and Pacific policy and development. So welcome, Tess. Thank you, Renee. It's lovely to be able to join you. Um, so you've recently um, published a major report on the Pacific uh, for the Whitlam Interest Institute. Um, and I'm really keen to talk to you um, about how you went con about conducting that research um, and, of course, what the findings um, of that research were. Um, but before I do that, I'd really like to um, talk to you about how it is that you came to be doing research on the Pacific in the first place. So. You studied law um, at the University of Wales and did a PhD in law and criminology. But then your first academic job was at the University of the South Pacific in Vanuatu. That's a very long way from Cardiff, just about as far as you can go and stay on the same planet. So how did that happen? Had you been studying the Pacific? Had you been there before? <laughs> It's pretty much a, a very simple story of supply and demand. So in the late 1990s, there were more uh, PhD graduates with degrees in law and criminology that wanted to teach criminal law than there were jobs in criminal law. So I was pretty much on a track of going to interviews around all different parts of the country in the UK. Um, mm -hmm. In the midst of this, the then head of school, the School of Law of USP came to give a staff seminar in Cardiff and 
as he left with a throwaway remark, he said to me, I need a criminal lawyer and I need someone that's young and cheap. So I, <laughs> for the job and um, yeah, got on a plane. I'd never been out of Western Europe. I'd never been to Australia or New Zealand. I couldn't wow. Vanuatu on a map. I'm sure, you know, which, you know, lots of people have that problem, but at that time, couldn't find Vanuatu on a map. And um, yeah, it was pretty much as far as you could go without meeting yourself coming back the other way. Wow. So going from Cardiff to Port Vila must have been an enormous change. Um, were there things that particularly sort of surprised you or, or intrigued you when you got there? Um, well, pretty much everything. I left, um, I left the UK on the 6th of January. So I left in the dead of winter and arrived into the heat of summer, arrived into Port Vila um, about five days later into 31 degrees of subtropical heat. So that was definitely um, the first thing that I noticed. And obviously I had no experience of being in a Melanesian country or being around Melanesian people. Some aspects of it were brought home very soon to me, I was sitting at a coffee shop on day three or something and a young man sat down next to me and smiled at me and I said, hello. And he said to me, oh, we know where you live. We want to sound and sing for you tonight. And I was like, wow, okay, well, that's, that's interesting. And, you know, sort of tried to look fairly what that meant, check with my colleagues what that meant. And yeah, it was pretty much full on from the beginning. Um, yeah, it was, it was full immersion. And I guess... The thing that I never expected to live in the Pacific for 20 years, but I knew very quickly that I would never live in the UK again. That was something that came home to me very quickly. Oh, okay. Wow. So since you um, moved to Vanuatu and had an academic job, um, you've worked on a huge range of projects and issues um, across the Pacific. You've had you know, various jobs and consultancies and so on. Of all the, the huge range of things that you've done, um, are there some that really stand out for you? Some that you think, you know, really changed your understanding of the region or that you think really had a big impact on, you know, how people understood um, the region or what they achieved? Yeah, I think there were a couple. The first one was quite early on in my consulting career where I did a, I worked on a stakeholder survey but with a public sector support program in Vanuatu. And I worked with um, a, good, a good friend of mine, a very, um, a very experienced uh, Nivanuatu public servant who was also was a consultant. And we, we were really a team. And I guess that was my first experience of actually going to a whole range of ministries and departments and talking with senior public servants about what they were doing. And it really brought home to me that despite the fact that a lot of the rhetoric around the Pacific is around capacity deficits and the need for capacity building, that within these bureaucracies, there are incredibly talented and committed professionals who are working really hard, often in quite constrained circumstances. And I think that that insight has remained with me throughout. And, and certainly I've been in numerous situations where I've, I've heard myself saying, we need to think about where the strength already is. We need to look for where the capacity is and build on that. We're not going to go into this on the assumption that there is no capacity because that, you know, the logic of what I know just makes that untrue. So that, that's, that's sort of like that, that lesson is one that I've carried with me um, as I've done other work, whether it's research or consulting or advising. Yeah. And then I guess more recently I worked, as you said, for the office of the president of the, of Vanuatu and that was a very 
you know, it was a great honor to be given that role. Um, it was a very sensitive role, obviously putting a, an advisor into the office of the president. I think the fact that I was a, that I'm a citizen of Vanuatu was part of the, the reason that I was selected. Um, it came at a very tricky time. There'd been a lot of political upheaval in the country and the president's office had found itself in various firing lines. And then that was complicated even further by the fact that during the time that I was working with them, the, the president died, um, which obviously was a great, um, a great upset for the country and particularly for the staff of his office. So we had to deal with the whole hiatus around the work stopping and then the new president being installed. So it was a very, um, yeah, I guess that's one of the few things where I've had to sort of juggle a whole lot of, you know, it's not just your intellect that's being, you know, you've got to use your people skills and your political skills and your emotional intelligence. So yeah, there was a, a lot going on in that little piece of work. Yeah, absolutely. And you're in a circumstance that I mean, you never really predict um, you're going to sort of be suddenly thrown into and you just got to manage it somehow. So yeah. Um, so look, one of the things that I think is just really wonderful about researching the Pacific is just the huge diversity of peoples, cultures, languages, um, and so on. But that, of course, must bring with it really serious challenges. Like, how do you deal with the fact that you're dealing with such diverse groups of people when you're doing your research? And it sort of gets me thinking, it's, it's an old question, but it's one worth revisiting. It's that question of, is it that meaningful for us to talk about the Pacific as, as a single thing or... Yeah. Or, or is it more meaningful to look at, you know, lots of little different bits of it? I think certainly I find myself when asked, you know, occasionally people, students or journalists will say to me, well, you know, how do people feel about this in the Pacific? And it's just like, well, I don't know how to answer that question because I don't know which bit of the Pacific you're talking about. So I think the diversity is something that um, does does come as a surprise to people when they first engage with the region. Um, sometimes it's a bit confusing because you think, well, there's only 11 million people. How can there really be that much diversity? But the fact is that there is. Um, what I usually encourage people to do is to embrace that and to see part of that as part of the, the joy of working in the region rather than seeing it as an impediment or a barrier or a source of frustration. I think it's something to be embraced and engaged with as fully as you're able to, because I've always found Pacific Island people very generous in sharing with of their culture and their language and their ways of thinking and doing. And so, you know, there's there's never there's never a situation where there isn't something new to learn. Um, I think increasingly, um, as we've seen more geostrategic attention return to this part of the world, one of my concerns is very much the point that you've made that. Uh, people who are perhaps new to thinking about the region or are coming at it from a, maybe a different, a particular lens um, do tend to want to compress things into talking about the Pacific or Pacific Islanders and, and they don't recognize that diversity. And I think that not only is that um, intellectually lazy in a lot of situations, um, I think it's disrespectful in a lot of situations, but I also think increasingly it is strategically inept to seek to engage in that way and that it's only by really recognizing and embracing and really trying to understand that diversity that the sorts of relationships that partners say they want are going to be able to be formulated. 
Well, that's a, a, a great segue, um, if you like, into discussing um, the report that you just um, published with the Whitland Centre. Um, it's titled Pacific um, Perspectives on the World. Unfortunately, I don't have a copy, but I believe you have a copy <laughs> to, to hold up um, for us. Um, so the report is, um, if you like, a response um, to the Pacific Step Up. Um, for those people who might be watching who aren't familiar with it, could you just give us a little a little overview of what that is and why it really provoked the need to go and do this sort of research? Okay, so the work that we did, I was asked to um, lead on this research by Pacifica, which is the NGO that, that ran this research project on behalf of the Whitlam Institute. And as you say, it does come out of the, the debate and the conversations around the step up. So the step up dates originally from about 2016, and it was which, uh, an announcement that Malcolm Turnbull made at the Pacific Island Forum leaders meeting, which was basically saying we need to, um, Australia needs to reorient its uh, attention on the Pacific. It needs, the Pacific needs to be more important when it comes to policy thinking and action. Um, and we need to think about improving those, the relationships that we currently have. Um, it, it was turbocharged, if you like, by Scott Morrison in November, 2018, in a speech that he made at Laverack Barrett. And he's basically, he has taken on um, as a sort of a personal signature foreign policy, this idea of the Pacific step up. And it covers a range of things, including an increase in uh, time spent in the region up until this year, um, ministers and officials spending time in the region, more visits of Pacific officials to Australia. So much more work on building those personal relationships between senior senior officials and ministers. Mm -hmm. um, we've seen Scott Morrison visit Solomon Islands, Fiji, Vanuatu and PNG. So he's spent a fair amount of time in the region. There's also, there are other elements, including increased uh, military defense ties, more visits by ships and um, soldiers. We've seen um, the development of the Office of the Pacific within DFAT. And we've also seen um, an increase in labor mobility programs, and other other issue other aspects of it, I guess the big one that is you know we're still kind of trying to work out exactly what its role is going to be is the infrastructure investment facility, which is amounts to about two billion dollars for infrastructure projects in the region. That that facility is yet to be activated and applied to anything. Mm. So that's that's what the step up was. Now, in the region and elsewhere, and depending on who you ask there is this underlying question of, is this just about countering the rise of China or is it something more? And I guess that was, that it's into that um, nexus that this research steps. Hmm. So the subtitle of the report, um, for anyone who didn't manage to catch it, is listening to Australia's island neighbours in order to build strong, respectful and sustainable relationships. And I really, really like this idea of listening. It's really really at the centre um, of this piece of research. Um, so I'm so really interested in how the significance of listening um, informed the research methodology. It, it's just not something you hear in a lot of, or you read in a lot of big research reports or big pieces of serious research. But in this, it, it seems to drive everything. So yeah, so, so what was the significance of that for you? Well, I guess for me personally, it came out of a piece of work I'd done previously that was published by the Keynes Institute when I first looked at the step up and I said, and one of the things that I said was that 
Australia needs to adopt a listen and learn approach to the Pacific. And so I guess having lived in the Pacific, and obviously I spend a lot of time talking with Pacific Islanders in various countries, and also being, you know, in conversations here in Australia and elsewhere, you know, I, I was just struck by the fact that there was an awful lot of talking about the Pacific. So everybody seemed to have a lot to say about the Pacific, but it wasn't always easy to actually know what Pacific Island people thought about things. Um, you know, I, I was, it wasn't always easy to see where their voices were being um, brought to the fore or where they were being included in conversations. You know, I mean, I have found myself in situations where I've been to conferences and workshops and thought, oh, good, here's the Pacific panel, only to be looking at a group of people, none of whom are Pacific Islanders. So, you know, I just felt that there was still, even though that, that is changing, there was still a lot more to be done about actually asking um, Pacific Islanders fairly open-ended questions about what was important to them. And I guess that's the other aspect of it is that, you know, Pacific Island people will tell me, oh, they're always being consulted about things. They're being consulted about wash projects or disaster resilience or whatever else. But we really went with fairly sort of like open questions along the lines of, so tell us about yourselves and tell us what's important. And, you know, and, and for a lot of people reported back to us that they'd never really been asked those questions before. They'd never been asked those sort of big questions about, how do you feel about your country and what do you think is special about your country and what would you like your country to look like in the future and how would you like your country's relationships with other countries to look? They, you know, they hadn't really been involved in those conversations. And so there'd been this sort of a bit of a misperception that Pacific Island people didn't really think about those things. It turns out that they think about them a lot and they've got quite a lot to say. So the research ended up being very much participant-led research so starting off with these sort of big conversations and working out what it is that Pacific Islanders um, you know wanted to talk about or what was actually important to them sort of within the range of things that you were interested in um, and you and the team did that across three countries that right Vanuatu, Fiji and the Solomon Islands. How, how do you even go about setting up something like that across three countries and with such a like such a wide-ranging sort of starting point to actually, you know, produce something that is actually a really very focused report in the end that has very clear findings and has really brought this together. In, in practical terms, how do you do that? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. It's something that I've reflected on um, quite recently in relation to this research. And one of the one of the limitations of, a, of something like this is that, you know, it's very much a product and it, it's hard to capture the process um, mm -hmm. that we used. And we worked with, so we, there were three um, researchers based here in Australia, but we, and then we also, but the bigger team comprises researchers that were in each of the, the target countries. And they, we chose those countries because they were ones where we felt we had the most um, established expertise and particularly we had good contacts especially with on the ground researchers so that's why we you know so that sort of limited the countries that we picked but then we used a lot of um, Skype meetings and messenger groups to, to be in a constant conversation across the three countries and with all of the research partners around things like what's the best way of going about this what do you think about these questions? So all of the different stages were a process of a, 
very much a shared um, shared knowledge exchange between all of us. So by this, obviously, you know, when it comes to doing the writing, it all gets a bit sort of narrow and funneled, but it's, it draws on a, a much wider range of processes. Um, and I think the nature of the questions that we asked and the nature of the people that we engaged with, so we, we had about 150 participants across the three countries, comes out of our our knowledge of those countries and our established networks and i think also um our established credentials as researchers that have worked in those countries before so that does did make some of the things like getting access um and being able to encourage people to be a part of it i think that made it easier obviously the logistics around working across four different countries and however many time zones I think that just comes down to exposure of working in the Pacific and you just kind of get used to the fact that planes get delayed and things, you know, cyclones come and you have to have to go next week, not this week. The work that the work that was done in Solomon Islands was done at the time that um, Solomon Islands was shifting its diplomatic relationship from Taiwan to China. That was literally happening while we were doing the research. So that was obviously skewing all the conversations. But you know, it's all part of the it's all part of the journey, and I think it all adds to the the richness of the data. Mm. Um, so the report includes um, several key findings, way way too many really for us to talk about. But look, there's a couple that I just um, wanted to focus on that I found particularly interesting. One of them is, in some senses, maybe a little bit surprising, and it's this idea that quality matters more than quantity in the relationship between Australia and the Pacific Islands. What did the participants mean by that? Um, what they meant was that all of the participants, so in terms of the relationship with Australia, everyone was very aware of Australia's presence in the region and the contributions that Australia makes across a range of sectors, whether it's disaster response through to health, infrastructure, whatever else. So no, nobody was in any doubt that Australia wasn't making really significant contributions. I guess what people felt was missing from that, or, or no, let me let me go back. The concern that people had was that those um, that it was quite transactional, that it was very much sort of well, we're giving you this, so that's yeah, we're done now. <laughs> you know, sort of can you you know, and so they felt that they people expressed to us things like they felt they weren't able to uh, criticize. Um, aspects either of Australian policy or Australian modes of engagement, or they felt that it was quite, um, there was a level of paternalism involved. They didn't feel, they didn't feel that simply giving more created relationships based on respect and reciprocity and um, equal, equality. And that's what they're looking for. They're looking for really quite deep and meaningful relationships. Um, that include that degree of reciprocity. And the reciprocity is a really interesting issue because it's not about, well, you give us aid, so we'll give you aid. It comes back to a, a recognition that within, that Pacific Islanders feel, well, we have a lot to offer. We may not have money and we may not have, you know, resources like you have, but we still have a lot to offer and we want what we bring to be valued and treasured and, and considered to be an important part of the overall relationship. And they felt that um, their experience of engaging with Australia and Australians was lacking in that respect. That's really interesting, I think, um, particularly in light of some of the other findings in the report about 
about China and about, you know, there, there are very, very divergent and conflicting views um, that are expressed in the report about the role of China in the Pacific and what that means both for Pacific Islands and for you know, Australia's engagement in the region. Um, but I'm really interested in this idea of reciprocity um, and this relationship building. Is it the case that Pacific Islanders actually want very different things out of their relationship with Australia and China? Um, you know, on one hand, you've got people saying, well, we want, we want you know, quality, not quantity. We want this understanding, trusting, um, you know, deep relationship. And on the other saying, you know, we're really keen on infrastructure investment from China. Is it that they want different things? Is, or, is there a, or is there a much more complicated answer? <laughs> I think I think there are various levels to that answer. I think overall it, it is a bit more complex. So certainly, um, other than Australia, China was the country with, that people thought about most and had most to say. And you're quite right, there was a range of views. I think one of the things that was quite interesting that a number of people reported was they said, well, China offered infrastructure they didn't take that away from Australia. Australia wasn't doing infrastructure. We went to Australia and said, we're hosting the Pacific mini games. We need a sports center. And Australia said, we don't do that. So we went to China and China said, yes, okay. So there was a bit of uh, perplexedness, if you like, about, well, why is Australia getting so stressed about this? Because it's not like China's doing something they were doing. China yeah. just do gender equity work or you know that sort of thing so it's you know they uh, I think some Pacific Islanders don't understand this apparent competition hmm. I think there are aspects of the way that China engages um, that resonate with aspects of Pacific culture hmm. and I think that um, for example the um, the respect and deference that is paid to elite leaders um, that's often a very much a feature of Pacific cultures. And it's also, you know, they see Chinese leaders when their prime minister goes to Beijing, they see that it's a very formal affair. There's a lot of ceremony. There are flags. There's a banquet. Um, they see that. And they, you know, in, for some people, the perception is, look, this is a country that treats our leaders in a way that makes them feel important. They're showing appropriate respect to our mm. leaders. Um, and they don't necessarily feel that when they see the Australian approach to their leaders, which can, from the Australian perspective, I think is seen as being quite sort of matey and casual, but in some, some Pacific Islanders will perceive it as being ill-mannered. So is there a sense then that, you know, there are significant things that Australia could be doing sort of, you know, better um, or differently, just even in that, even in, at the level of just those basic interactions with representatives from Pacific Islands. I think so. I mean, you know, I think it's really important that, you know, I, we don't want the report to be seen as being some sort of checklist. It's like, you know, before you leave, make sure you've got this, that and the other. But I think there definitely are some significant ways in which um, Australia can engage better. And one is still really around the listening. It's really about invite people into the conversations. You know, I've been talking to people about this whole thing about a trans-Tasman bubble. And, and I, you know, I keep saying, you know, Pacific Island leaders want to be in this conversation. Please get a seat at the table so you can listen to what they have to say. But, the, you know, there's still a lot of resistance to that. 
One of the really significant issues that came out of this report, which is something that was new to me, was that Pacific Islanders want to engage with the whole of Australia. They feel that Indigenous and Torres Strait Islander Australians are very absent from their experience of Australia's, Australia and Australians. And they really feel that that's something that, um, that is missing in the, in the whole relationship. And I think that some appropriate um, and well thought out ways of expanding the engagement to include um, a much wider range of Australia would go a long way to helping to, to, to demonstrating to Pacific Islanders that this, this relationship is something that, they, that Australia really values. I think that, you know, overall, there's still a fair amount of um, healthy scepticism in the region about the Pacific step up along the lines of, well, how long is this going to last? If China gets bored of us, will Australia disappear again? You know, so I think in terms of walking the talk and really demonstrating that commitment, there are a number of things that can be done. And, and none of them are about, you know, chucking money at things or a project. This is about really you know, building strong relationships from the ground up. So I've had a look over here. We've got a few questions um, starting to come in. Um, and one from um, James Cox from Pacifica. Um, really interesting question. Um, he writes, our Pacific Perspectives report recommended investment in Pacific literacy in Australia. How would greater Pacific literacy change how we approach issues like the Pacific travel, travel bubble? And that, you know, another thing, we could have talked about from the report is the idea that you know, Pacific Islanders know far more about Australia than the average Australian knows about you know, particular communities in the Pacific Islands. So, you know, how, how do we how do we address that? And you know, and you know, to to address the question, how would it help us approach big issues that that really involve all of us? I think I think it would be a game changer. So there are there are people that are much more um, invested in this than I am in certain aspects. My particular aspect is probably around um, how the media covers the Pacific and what Australian audiences see about the Pacific in the media. But there are other people, such as Georgie Ravulo and Katerina Teoia, you know, who can tell you about the importance of teaching. Uh, Australian school students and university students about the region. There's only one university in Australia that offers Pacific studies, which, you know, is, it should be staggering, I guess, you know, it isn't, but it, and you're quite right, it does affect everybody. One of the reasons that I think um, those of us that get concerned about Australian policy, whether it's the travel bubble or whatever else, one of the reasons we struggle is that there is no domestic accountability for this decision making because nobody asks potential candidates, what's your Pacific policy? All through the elections, uh, the foreign minister and the shadow foreign minister can go on, you know, can be interviewed by Lee Sales and Hamish MacDonald and whoever else, and no one ever says to them, what about the Pacific? Or if they do, they don't have a follow-up question. So there's no domestic accountability. And that sets Australia aside from, for example, New Zealand, where there's a much stronger domestic accountability. But the amount of resources that are devoted to the Pacific by the Australian taxpaying public are significant. Um, there's the aid, but that's only one component. There's a whole lot of other resor policy resources and financing that is focused on that part of the region. And people, you know, I, I just find it quite amazing that people seem quite happy for that money to be spent on their behalf and take absolutely no interest in what's done with it. 
Yeah, it's really interesting that you've got this sort of um, sort of significant imbalance, if you like, between this massive amount of money and a real lack of proper sort of deep knowledge that is required to scrutinise how that money is spent or to understand you know, the implications of those sorts of policy decisions. Um, we probably wouldn't expect to see that in, in any other circumstance. I mean, I can't think off the top of my head of any other circumstance like that. It's almost as if, you know, you know, the Australian public thinks, well, you know, the Pacific, it's some nice places to go on holidays and it's over there and that's, that's sort of it. It's sort of unthreatening and, and, and nice and we don't need to worry too much, which is a very sort of, you know, a, a very shallow um, sort of uncritical and you know, unengaged um, kind of view. Um, another question here is, is there a need for greater youth engagement across the Pacific um, Australia region and how could we better engage youth? Um, in this area? I think that's a really important question. Overall, Pacific populations are young and, um, you know, that we have some data in the report that reflects that. So, and certainly in Pacific Island countries, youth engagement is something that people are very concerned about. You know, they're concerned about education, they're concerned about work opportunities, they're concerned about cultural engagement, sporting engagement. So there are lots of opportunities for young people from Australia and the region to spend more time together. Now, the new Colombo plan is part of what this is all about. It comes with a, a bitter irony in that it's perfectly easy for, or relatively easy for young Australians to travel into Papua New Guinea or Fiji or Vanuatu and spend weeks and months making friends with young Pacific Islanders. And I would encourage them to do that. However, they will find that when they invite their Pacific Island friends to pay a reciprocal visit, to Australia, that that will be a very, very hard thing to achieve. So whether it's engagement around youth or business or whatever, this issue of improving the ability of Pacific Islanders to move and to travel to Australia is a real sticking point. It was a, across all three countries, it was a real sticking point in the relationship. And it does become a sticking point. You know, any of us that have, you know, I've organized conferences where you're bringing people from the Pacific to the region and you literally have to have a person whose only job it is, is to make sure that everyone gets a visa in time. So that's the level of um, administrative uh, burden, not to mention financial that comes with it. And it's very imbalanced because Australians literally just have to hop on a plane and turn up and they get, they can enter these countries. Yeah, so that's a significant challenge um, for building those sorts of person-to-person -person relationships and, and maintaining them over, you know, significant periods of time. Um, so another question we have here is um, whether you have any comment about post-COVID-19 tourist behaviour. Um, I'm not sure exactly what the question's asking, but I know that you've been writing um, a fair amount about this general issue. So, you know, love to hear your take on it. Yeah, so obviously um, tourism is a significant uh, part of the economy in a number of Pacific Island countries in terms of creating employment and generating revenue. And obviously that's come to a complete stop because of COVID-19. So a number of countries, Fiji particularly is very strong, but Fiji, Vanuatu, Samoa um, are looking at, well, what, what are we going to do with our tourism industries? What's it going to look like? When are they going to come back? What do we need to have in place? Um, I think it's an ongoing conversation. I think one of the reasons that I've been pushing for Pacific Islands to be included in the current conversation is so that these are the these issues can be 
canvassed and ventilated and articulated and so that Pacific Island countries can make their own decisions. I think what people seem to be forgetting is that what we're talking about are exercises of sovereign power. So we're talking about, are you going to open your border? What are your biosecurity arrangements? What do you do about public health? These are all big sovereign decisions and they need to be informed by a range of factors and they need to be informed by a lot of information. So I think there's still a lot more to learn about what Pacific Island countries will want from tourists and what they can legitimately expect. Some people have said that maybe what needs to happen is tourism needs to be um, gathered together in a particular place. So maybe you can go to this island or these islands where they can be contained and not be sort of wandering around all over. There are also issues around ability to test and quarantine and isolate if needed. These are conversations for all the countries in the world. This idea that somehow the Pacific, Pacific Island countries don't need to be thinking about this. Someone else can do their thinking for them and then just tell them. Seems to me a bit bizarre. That's where we're currently at, but hopefully that will change. Yes, hopefully. Well, thank you very much for a very wide ranging and absolutely fascinating um, conversation. Um, we could go on for hours, I'm sure, talking about the ins and outs of um, conducting research in the Pacific and all the different you know, projects that you've worked on over the years. But thank you very, very much for your time um, today. Thank you to the audience um, for listening in today, uh, for watching um, today's Asia story. Um, next week, I'm going to be talking to one of our um, fabulous and very, very energetic PhD students, um, Elise Stevenson. So we're going to be talking about uh, women in foreign affairs and about the work she's been doing with young people in Southeast Asia um, as part of the Australia Now program. But I'm sure you'll all join me um, virtually in thanking Tess for a, a really fascinating conversation. So thank you very much. <laughs>